If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of Titus, chapter 1. Titus 1. If you have, if you're using the, the black Bibles there in your, in your pew, that's page 998, 998. Last week we started a new sermon series, working our way through the book of Titus. Kyle started us off by preaching on Paul's greeting in verses one through four. Now, if you haven't heard that, I encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon. Um, it's good to, to kind of listen to these as we go through so you can just kind of maintain context and, and know kind of how one sermon fits with the next. But as we move ahead to our next passage today, I want to point out one phrase in verse 1 that I think will help frame all of the rest of our sermons through Titus. If you look at verse 1 in Titus, Paul says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. So right here we have a purpose statement from Paul himself. What was the purpose of Paul's apostleship? It's for the sake of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. That's why we've titled the sermon series, Titus, for the sake of your faith. Paul was writing these things to Titus so that the faith of God's people might be strong and stable and not weak and fickle. Paul wanted the churches on Crete to be built upon the enduring truth of God's revealed word, not on every wind of doctrine that might come their way. He wanted their faith to bear consistent fruit of holiness as they renounced ungodliness and worldly passions and they lived self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Those are words from Titus, the book of Titus. Does that sound like the kind of faith you would like to have? Would you say that your faith is regularly marked by strength, stability, and holy living? Would you say that your faith... uh, many times is weak and fickle? Does it seem like you are a slave to your emotions and your circumstances at times? Do you feel close to God when your circumstances are going well and far from Him when things are hard? If any of that describes you, then Titus was also written for the sake of your faith and the sake of mine. You see, Titus was written not only for the sake of the believers on the island of Crete, but also for the sake of our faith. That word elect in verse 1, that word is referring to God's people, those whom God has predestined for salvation. And if you're here today and you are trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life, you are part of God's elect. The book of Titus was written for the sake of your faith. So we know this book was written for the good of God's people, his church. So it should be no surprise to us that the very next section talks about church leaders. Today we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 9, which lay out for us the qualifications of an elder. But before we jump into those qualifications, there's a few introductory matters that we need to go over, okay? Uh, first, the first thing we're going to talk about is vocabulary, okay? We're going to be using the word elder a lot in this message. It's important for us to understand that the New Testament uses the titles elder, overseer, and pastor or shepherd interchangeably, okay? Now, in our church, we use the terms elder and pastor most frequently, 
because that's just what most of us are used to. But we get that idea from the New Testament, okay? So there are not multiple offices like pastor over here, overseer over here, elder over here. There's one office, right? Pastor, elder. So I'm going to use those terms interchangeably. Now, I said there's, there's one office. There's two offices. There's also deacons, right? But when we're talking about elders and pastors, there's one, okay? The other officer is, of course, a deacon. Deacons serve a similar but distinct role in the church as elders, but we believe that the New Testament teaches in these, these two offices only are to be held in the church, elder and deacon. Today, we're going to spend our time talking about elders, the second introductory matter we need, we need to make, uh, be very clear about is that we believe we hold to a plurality of elders. Now, it may not be totally clear from this passage in Titus, but throughout the New Testament as a whole, we see that the expectation for churches is that there be a plurality of elders who lead the church. Nowhere in the New Testament do we have an example of a single elder-led church, nor is there any teaching that says churches should have only one elder. And... That's okay, but when we look at all the places elders are mentioned, it's always talked about in the plural. That's why we hold to the plurality of elders here at Redeemer. Uh, we, we, we believe that God has gifted the church uh, to be led by multiple elders, multiple pastors, not just one. Now, many of you, like me, may have grown up in a church that had only one pastor, in fact, this is really the norm for a lot of denominations. But again, when we look at the New Testament teaching, we see that a plurality of elders, a plurality of pastors is the expectation. The third introductory matter is male eldership. We believe that the office of elder is reserved for men only. And we are not saying that women are somehow less important than men, less gifted than men, or have less value than men. But what we see in the New Testament is that God has designed men and women a certain way to fulfill different yet complementary uh, roles in the home and in the church. So we don't have the freedom to disregard God's teaching on this subject. We don't have time to go over all of it today, but just know that as we go into this topic, uh, we, we are approaching this uh, with these things in mind, that uh, elders that there's one office being elder, pastor, right, overseer, that we believe in a plurality of elders and we believe in male eldership. So with all of that in the background, hopefully we'll be able to focus our attention now on what this passage says about the qualifications of an elder. My hope today is that we will see that a godly faith must be modeled by godly leaders. A godly faith must be modeled by godly leaders. Let's read, starting in verse 5, Titus 1, verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination... For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, 
and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So the first thing we see in verse 5 is that Paul left Titus in Crete. Let's think about that for a minute. Paul calls Titus his true child in a common faith. Titus had accompanied Paul for years during his second and maybe third missionary journeys. Paul was with, or Titus was with Paul at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. Paul considered himself to be Titus' spiritual father and fellow worker in gospel ministry. And yet, for the sake of the mission, Paul left Titus in Crete. I, found, I find this to be encouraging as I think about our own church. Over the past eight years in the life of Redeemer Church, we've seen many dear brothers and sisters come and go. Some of them are here today. They've come back to stay. It can, it can at times be discouraging to continue the work of ministry when it seems like God continually moves people in and out for various reasons. But here we see in the life and ministry of Paul the necessity of separation. In order for the gospel to be proclaimed and for the mission of Christ to be accomplished, it's not always best for us to stay together, as, as good as that sounds. Making disciples means multiplication, and multiplication often means separation. But we also see that there's a purpose here. What was the purpose of leaving Titus in Crete? It was to put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town. Here we see that church order should be a characteristic of a local church. And to have order, the church must have leadership. Order is not something that just happens, right? If you've ever been in leadership or uh, on a leadership role in any organization, you, you know that it do, you just get a bunch of people together, there's not going to be much order, right? Until there's some leader that rises to the top, someone who, who gives leadership and direction to this body of people. In fact, without intentionally building order and structure into, into the life of the church, chaos will quickly ensue. Paul knows this, and he tells Titus to appoint elders and to put things into order. Now, there are some in our day who think that true spirituality is suppressed by order and structure, and that if anything is to be of God, it must come about spontaneously without the constraints of order or process. But that's not the teaching of the New Testament, at least not all the time. Here we see the necessity of putting things into order. And one of the primary ways that happens is through godly church leadership. So that begs the question for us today. What kind of person is qualified to be a leader in the church? The New Testament unashamedly gives us the qualifications of an elder. We must not shy away from this. And church, you got to hear me when I say this. I wanted to shy away from this this week. This is not a comfortable message to preach. But we are not free to alter or minimize these qualifications. They were important for Paul. They are recorded in Holy Scripture, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and we must take them seriously. These words mean something. So let's take a look now at the qualifications of an elder. 
I've tried to divide this up in, in a helpful way. I don't know if I've accomplished that or not. There's about 17 things here that Paul lists, and so I, I can't just go through the list and talk about 17. I don't have a 17-point sermon, right? So I try to group them together in ways that might be helpful. We'll see if it's helpful. It's helpful to me. Um, the first one, an elder's character. This is primarily about living above reproach. First, we see if anyone is above reproach. That's verse 6. And again, in verse 7, it's mentioned, he must be above reproach. To be above reproach means that an elder must be a man whom no one suspects of consistent wrongdoing or immorality. This does not mean that he has achieved sinless perfection by any means. This does not mean that he doesn't have sin struggles and personality quirks and personal foibles and shortcomings. This means that the regular pattern of his life should be marked by a consistent trajectory of godliness and righteous behavior. When someone looks at the life of an elder, there should be no obvious immoral behavior that characterizes his life. Why is this important? It's important first because an elder is automatically responsible for setting an example for others to follow. How can he do that unless he actually models Christ? You see, biblical leaders are only effective insofar as they lead people toward Christ. We are not interested. I'm not interested in creating little Caleb's and little Kyle's, right? Our goal is to see people come to maturity in Christ. So if an elder is going to say, follow me, then he had better be following Christ. We say with Paul in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Second, an elder must live above reproach for the sake of the message he's preaching. Nothing will cast doubt and derision on the gospel more than a leader whose life doesn't match his doctrine. It's no wonder non-Christians take much of Christianity to be a joke or something to be scoffed at when so many high-profile Christian leaders fall into immorality and disgrace. The Puritan pastor, Richard Baxter, he, he wrote this book, The Reformed Pastor. If you are at all interested in church leadership, book one, read this. It's, it's a must. It's fantastic. It has been instrumental in helping me think about uh, these things. He, he writes this in The Reformed Pastor. He puts it this way. Take heed to yourselves, lest your example contradict your doctrine, and lest you unsay with your lives what you say with your tongues, and be the greatest hinderers of the success of your own labors. You see, we tear down what we are trying to build when our lives do not match our doctrine. Now, this is a great time to pause and say that this truth here, this does not only apply to those who are leaders in Christian ministry. Yes, it's easy to point the finger at pastors, especially the, the high-profile ones, right? I mean, easy to point the finger at them. Everybody knows about them. But this is true for all believers, Brothers and sisters, you are called to live above reproach. You see, when your life does not match what you say you believe, others will notice. When you claim to follow Christ, but you live just like those who don't, then why would anyone want 
the Savior that you have. This applies to you as well. In fact, we're going to see that almost everything that we say today or that we see today applies to all of us. As we return to our text, it's important for us to remember what James 3.1 says. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. If you desire church leadership at all, that needs to be on your mind. You will be judged with greater strictness. Elders must remember that they will be held to an even higher standard. They are entering into a position where they will be judged with greater strictness than other Christians. If you're considering eldership one day, you must come to terms with this beforehand. You should not be surprised when others criticize or question or judge your character, even if it's done poorly or maliciously or with wrong motives. It should be expected. And quite frankly, it's a grace to us. If anyone is in church leadership, it is a grace to you that others watch your life carefully. We should be thankful We must move on. For the next part, I've grouped several qualifications together under the heading, The Pastor's Home. This is because these qualifications deal directly with how an elder leads his family and his home life. First, an elder is the husband of one wife. Now, we don't take this to mean that an elder must be married, okay? Paul was not married. Paul encouraged others to actually stay single for the purpose of gospel ministry. Christ was not married, But it will be common for elders to be married. So for those that are married, they should be the husband of one wife. What does this mean? Well, another way of saying this is that he he must be a one-woman man. His eye should be upon only one woman. He is called, just like all other Christians, to sexual purity and fidelity. A man who regularly gives himself over to lust is not fit for the office of elder. This lust can manifest itself in different ways. Certainly marital unfaithfulness is in view here. Pornography is a massive problem in our churches today. Any man who regularly views inappropriate images or videos is not fit for eldership. Filthy language and speaking in sexual matters in a degrading and inappropriate way can be evidence of sexual impurity. Paul knows that this issue is common for men and he is upfront about the seriousness of it. Those engaged in sexual immorality should not be in leadership in the local church. Now, there are also implications for single men as well. Just because an elder isn't married does not mean he's not held to the same standard of sexual purity. The fact is, sexual infidelity is a massive problem in our day. This was certainly the case in Paul's day as well. But again, this standard does not only apply to those seeking to lead the church. Every man here is called to sexual purity. Every woman here is called to sexual purity. If you're struggling in this area of your life, please, please, Seek help from other faithful men who can help you fight for this purity. Next, Paul tells us that an elder's children must be believers. 
It's important to note this word believers does not mean they must be Christians, right? They must be Christ followers. Paul's not saying that an elder's children must be born again believers in order for him to be qualified for the office. This word believers can also mean faithful or stable or trustworthy or reliable, okay? And then Paul actually goes on to tell us what he means in the next phrase. They are not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Another reliable translation says that the children should be faithful and not accused of wildness or rebellion. Have you met children like this? Have you observed children who are out of control? And I'm not talking about kids that throw a fit sometimes, which is normal for all children, especially mine, depending on a lot of circumstances. But there is a difference between normal childlike behavior and a consistent pattern of overt rebellion and complete disregard for the authority and leadership of the parents. Now let's think about this some more. Why would the child's behavior disqualify the father from eldership? That doesn't seem right. Why? Why would Paul make this connection? Why would the Holy Spirit inspire Paul to say, if your children are out of control, you should not be a leader in God's church? It's because Paul knows that the behavior of the child is a direct result of the way the father manages the home. I know this can be a hard thing to swallow. It's hard for us to hear this. If you're on social media at all, you probably know that nothing ruffles the feathers of fathers and mothers more than when their own parenting is called into question. We want to fight against the idea that our children's behavior is in any way a result of our own failure as parents. But church, we must grow a thicker skin here, okay? We've got to be honest about this. There's a broader principle at work here than just eldership qualification. The way you treat your children, the way you discipline them and structure their lives is a direct reflection of what is going on in your heart. Are you harsh and heavy-handed with them? Do you shame them and criticize them or even abuse them in some way? And you're not fit for eldership. On the other side, are you oblivious to their out-of-control behavior? Do they frequently rebel against you with no consequences? Are they disrespectful to other children and adults? Are you unable to leave them alone without them causing problems for other people? Brothers, you have to ask yourself, is this a problem? Is this a failure to manage your home well? Are there things that you need to get in order in your home? These things really are important for leadership in the church. And we all need help here, right? The reason I say we need a thick skin is because we don't always see these things ourselves. We just don't. We have different patterns. We have different perceptions of things. And we have blind spots. We need the help of fellow mothers and fathers. We need to be able to be honest with each other and talk about our children, our parenting styles, and our blind spots. We need to be able to talk about these things with love and grace. 
but also without fear of judgment and condemnation. Brothers and sisters, we need true humility here. His children must be believers. Third, hospitable. Another aspect of the home that Paul commends is hospitality. First, hospitality tangibly expresses love. Opening your home to someone is one of the most practical displays of love we can do. Second, hospitality enables evangelism. It's a great way to speak the truth of the gospel to non-Christians in a non-threatening way. And third, hospitality promotes an open accountability. It's possible to keep your sin under wraps for a time, but when, when no one is allowed in your home. But regularly having people in your home is a great way to invite other brothers and sisters to check out your own blind spots. See, when they see how we interact with our spouses and our children, they begin to see us for how we really are. So hospitality should be a regular practice for anyone concerning considering eldership. And last is God's steward. You see it there in verse 7. It says, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. That word steward can also be manager. This is very similar to what 1 Timothy 3 says, talking about these same qualifications where it says, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? You see, church, it's clear. The home is to be the proving ground for gospel ministry. Managing the home well is a prerequisite to managing the church. See, just this week I read an article talking about this very passage, and the author writes this. At the front door of pastoral ministry, we find that if a pastor isn't a family man, he's not a church man. Notice that those who have families, caring for them well is a prerequisite to the ministry. Elders must, before accepting the office, be exemplary in investing in and leading their families well. There's much, much more we could say about this, but we must move on. The next category of qualifications I I call temperance, the elders' temperance. It seems to me in in this section that Paul is kind of stacking up several character traits that are very similar, yet not quite the same. I'm just summing them up with the word temperance. Let's look at the pastor's temperance. Now, the reason I use the word temperance is because it means moderation or self-restraint. Here's the list Paul uses. Not arrogant, not quick-tempered, not a drunkard, not violent, not greedy for gain. He is to be a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. See, it's not hard to see how many of these traits play into what we've already seen, right? There's a lot of overlap. Like I said before, I'm not going to just go down the list and define what these words mean. I'm just going to ask some questions. We're talking about temperance, right? Is he given to excess in anything? Is the man mastered by anything 
other than Jesus? Does he give himself over to excess in some way? Is he prone to fits of anger or rage? Does he eat or drink in excess or spend exorbitant amounts of money on trivial things? Does he acquire large amounts of debt with no plan to repay it? Is he consistently lazy or apathetic? Is he overly argumentative about every little point? How does he receive criticism or critique? Does he get defensive or dismissive when he is critiqued? Is he teachable? Is there a humility that marks his life so he's able to receive the counsel of others? Or does he always feel the need to argue his points and elevate his opinions to the level of doctrine and force others to adopt his point of view? All of these things mean that he has given himself over to excess of some kind. Maybe it's control, maybe it's money or power, maybe it's comfort or physical pleasure. Whatever the excess is, it has become his master. Now, even though all of us are prone to these things at certain times and seasons, it's when these character traits become a consistent and defining pattern when we should become concerned, okay? So this is not something that we just see one time and we say, Nope, not fit. I see that, not fit. No. This is a defining life pattern, okay? It takes time to see these things. What about this word disciplined? Is he regularly spending time in God's word and prayer? The apostles devoted themselves to the word of God and prayer. Is he prone to frequent swings in emotional stability? Maybe one day he's joyful and happy, and the next day he's deeply down in the dumps. Of course, we all have days. We all have seasons when we struggle to maintain discipline and emotional stability. I'm not saying an elder must never show great emotion. We all need genuine affection for Christ, and we all need to genuinely be able to talk about what's on our hearts. But there must be a measure of stability in his life if he's going to lead others. He should not be fickle, unreliable, and tossed into emotional distress with every problem or conflict that comes his way. There needs to be a consistent abiding in Christ and a realization of his security and identity in Christ that leads to self-controlled and upright disposition. Also included in this list is the simple four-letter word, holy. This just makes me wonder why Paul even says anything else on the list at all. Like, why not just say, an elder must be holy, right? Just move on. But it's because all these other qualities are what it means to be holy. When these other character traits define a man, he can rightly be called holy or set apart for God's use. All of these things show us that an elder must exercise temperance in his life. If he is mastered by anything other than Jesus, he may not be fit for leadership. Next, we see an elder's competency. He must be able to teach. An elder's competency. 
We see this in verse nine. It says, he must hold to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. See, being able to teach is the only unique qualification for elders. In 1 Timothy 3, the list of qualifications for deacons is almost identical to the list for elders, but the ability to teach is left off for deacons. Elders are uniquely responsible for the primary teaching responsibilities in the church. Now, this teaching responsibility encompasses a lot of things, but as we see here in Titus, it first includes holding to right doctrine himself. An elder must come to clear convictions in doctrinal matters before he attempts to teach others. Otherwise, what will you teach? If you don't actually believe anything, you're not going to have much to teach. Unless he first holds firmly to the word of God, he will have no life-giving message to proclaim. But outside of his own doctrine, an elder is to guard the doctrine of the church. There is a defined body of teaching that the church is to hold on to. In other places in the New Testament, this, is, this body of teaching is sometimes called the faith. It's the elder's responsibility to hold the church to that teaching no matter what it costs. This is one of the many reasons our church has a long and clear doctrinal statement that our elders must affirm without qualification or reservation. We have agreed to teach in accordance with it and not contrary to it. This is why we as elders oversee the new members process. We want to ensure as much as we can that those who are members of Redeemer Church are believers who can affirm our doctrinal statement. We cannot allow false teachers or those who would seek to bring division gain entrance into membership of this church. This is also why elders primarily lead what happens on Sunday mornings and oversee most of the other teaching responsibilities. This does not mean that we do all the teaching, right? But we are heavily involved in teaching and training up other faithful men and women who can teach others also. You see, the task of teaching is of primary importance in the life of the church, and it really does matter who does it. God has designed his church to look and function a certain way, and we're not free to simply delegate teaching to those whom we see as the most gifted. Yes, there's going to be many people that come into our church, into this building, who are gifted, gifted teachers. But as we've already seen, it's not just giftedness, it's not just competency that matters, it's character that matters. It's the home that matters. But, talking about competency, if anyone here aspires to the office of elder, a question you need to, you need to, to consider is, can I teach? Can I actually teach? It's a good question to ask yourself. And this question's not just for you to decide, Right? Many people who cannot teach think they can actually teach. Have you met these people? If you've been in college, you've probably met these people, right? They think they can teach. Probably shouldn't be teaching, right? In fact, 
you are probably the least qualified person to answer that question of, can I teach? Ask your wife. Ask your children. Ask other trustworthy brothers and sisters in the church who know who you know will tell you the truth and be honest with you and not just flatter you. Oh, yeah, 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 you'll be great, man. Yeah, sure. No, ask people that are going to tell you the truth. Can I actually teach? Do I make sense when I teach? Do people follow me? Am I able to hold people's attention? You know, these are, these are just practical questions about teaching abilities. And I need to say that it is okay Brothers and sisters, it's okay if God has not gifted you to be a teacher in a formal setting like this. God has gifted his people in many and various ways. We are not all the same. There are many different kinds of teaching. Doesn't mean you have to be able to stand in, in a pulpit on a Sunday morning. There's all kinds of ways we can teach. But it is okay. If after looking at your life, you say, I don't think I'm gifted. You might be wrong. That's why you need the help of others, but it's okay. Can he teach? An elder must be able to teach because, again, he's teaching the doctrine, the faith that has been once for all delivered to the saints. It is an important task. As we finish up today, I want to highlight what I was just talking about. I've spent a lot of time today defining and defending the office of elder. But what I don't want to communicate is that there's something wrong with you if you're not an elder or if you have no desire to be one. Men of Redeemer, please hear me when I say that God will provide everything his bride needs. He is always faithful to care for his bride. So don't try to force yourself to be a particular person that God has not created you to be. God has not gifted every man for eldership, nor has he gifted every man for the role of deacon. And when we try to force ourselves or others into the same mold, we have a tendency to discount the diversity that each other member brings to the body. So it's okay if God is not calling you to be an elder. However, I know that there are a few of you who probably do aspire to the office of elder. And for that, I'm very thankful. Please read over these qualifications. Memorize them. Meditate upon them. Take an honest look at your life and heart and see where you might be falling short. Ask your spouse or a trusted friend to help you pursue these things and put them into practice before seeking the office of elder. And remember this, it is character that matters most. God is looking for godly character. I want to take a moment to speak to the women of the church. There may be some women here who perhaps feel like nothing here applies to you, right? After all, the office of elder is restricted to men, so nothing to take away from this message. But please don't forget that leadership and teaching in the life of the local church can take on many different forms. 
Yes, the office of elder is reserved only for men because in that office, men exercise authority over other men. And Paul specifically says that women should not have that same teaching authority over other men. But outside of that one thing, women are free to lead and teach in all kinds of other ways. We want women to lead and to, and to teach other women. We want women to lead and teach children. We want women to be involved in biblical counseling, and to be involved in discipleship and community groups and life transformation groups. If you have a desire to do those things in a more formal setting, then please come see me or Kyle. We would love to give you opportunities to do that. In fact, I have a, a few opportunities right now that I would love to put you in. So women, when you hear this message on the qualifications of elders, don't just check out and assume none of it applies to you. Because the fact is, anyone who teaches in the church at all will be held to a higher standard. Many of these character traits must be yours as well if you aspire in any way to lead others. There's one last point I want to make before we finish. As I said earlier, I felt very conflicted when preparing uh, for this message. After all, I am preaching this as an elder of Redeemer Church, which means I am mostly preaching to myself here. And when I read this list, I often feel more convicted and overwhelmed than anything. I certainly don't feel qualified. In fact, if it were not for faithful brothers and sisters affirming these qualities in my life, I don't think I would be an elder. Because when I read this list, all I see are ways I fail, ways I don't measure up. But let me ask you this, which of these qualities do not also apply to every individual here? Maybe the ability to teach. But if you have kids, you've got to be able to teach something, right? You've got to teach your kids about Jesus somehow. So even that one applies to most of us. But all of these qualities apply to everyone here. We are all called to live above reproach. We are all called to sexual purity. We are all called to love our spouses and children with the love of Christ. We are all called to live with temperance and not become mastered by anything. And when we are honest with ourselves, we have all failed, have we not? But praise the Lord. There is one who has met all of these qualifications for us. He is our chief shepherd. He is our chief pastor. He is Christ the Lord. You see, Christ came. He came to this earth because God knew we could never achieve sinless perfection. He achieved it for us by living a sinless life. He was then murdered like a criminal on a cross And when he died, he purchased a people with his own blood. He then rose from the dead to prove that he truly was the Son of God in the flesh. He ascended to the Father, and now he rules over his church by his word. 
And anyone who trusts in him can be forgiven of their sins. His righteous life can be counted as your righteous life. And your sins could be placed on him. And when that happens, when that great exchange happens, two great realities come into being. First, you are counted righteous before God. God no longer sees you as the sinner who fails to live up to all these qualifications. You are righteous before him. You are adopted into his family. You are his child. He, would lo- he loves you and protects you and leads you by the still waters. That's the first thing that happens. And second, the Holy Spirit of God begins to live in you and works in you to actually make you more righteous. And then things like purity and living above reproach and love and grace and patience and temperance, these things begin to shape your character and your behavior so that you actually become more godly. This is the Christian life. This great work is for every believer. Every believer. There's nothing special about being an elder. We have no special track to God. We have no special way of communicating with him. All the means of grace that I have, you have. We begin to become more like Christ. This is our great hope that we, all of us, can actually be free from sin. That thing that you're struggling with, that thing that today is on your mind. Maybe we talked about it. Maybe it's something in this passage you're like, this is consistent sin. I can't get rid of it. For years I've dealt with it. You can be free from it. You can. This is our hope. That God, through his word, by his spirit, is making us more like Christ So when we look at these qualifications, we say, yeah, I fail. I I fail at, at this. But man, the Lord is making me holy. My life is on a trajectory of holiness. There's I see growth, others see growth in me. I'm pursuing Christ with all of my heart. That hope is all of ours, not just those seeking eldership. But for those who do desire eldership, know this, you desire a good thing. I encourage you today to look to Jesus for godliness, because a godly faith must be modeled by godly leaders. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We would have no we would have no direction. Lord, I, have, I would have no message to preach uh, without your word. Thank you that you have not left us without um, direction, without instruction on these things. So, Father, I pray that from this church, from this room, perhaps, you would raise up elders. You would raise up elders for Redeemer Church. 
those who desire to lead, those whose character uh, is, is marked by a life that is above reproach and a, a, a holiness and a trajectory of godliness and a pattern of grace and humility. Lord, please do that. Do that in me, do that in Kyle. And Lord, we pray that you do that in all of us. May you, Father, uh, by your spirit and by your word, shape us more and more into the image of Christ. Lord, be with us now in a very special way as we observe the Lord's Supper. May this be a time where we are able to meditate on the gospel and be able to tangibly, Father, partake in this means of grace together. In Jesus' name, amen.